Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's show is on a timely tax topic, quarterly income taxes. As we wrap up the first quarter of the new year, today we're going to discuss some of the key considerations and complexities in accounting for income taxes during interim periods. Joining me are PwC tax specialists Jen Spang and Cassie Bauman. They're going to cover the basics, the exceptions, and all little nuances. If, after listening to the show, you're looking for more quarterly information, there's still time to register for our Q1 accounting and reporting webcast. The live broadcast was last week, but you can sign up for one of the two replays being offered this month. Head over to cfodirect.com to register. And now, let's get started. So Jen and Cassie, thank you so much for joining me today. And given the time of year, as we're beginning to look ahead to quarter end reporting, I know a lot of companies are thinking through what their effective tax rate looks like for 2021 and definitely a lot going on from a tax perspective. But even putting that aside, it seemed like this would be a good time to talk about quarterly income taxes. So Jen, just to kick things off at a very high level, how do we think about a quarterly income tax provision? How is that calculated? Yeah, sure, Heather. I I think like many things at a high level, it'll seem pretty basic. And it's always when you get into the details, it gets a whole lot more complicated in certain fact patterns, at least. But each quarter, all companies would need to come up with their annual effective tax rate. So some people will call that the AETR. I likely will just say the ETR. And they will multiply that annual effective tax rate times the year-to-date for any period for the year-to-date income or loss. And that will give you the provision for year-to-date. And so then what would happen is, of course, Q1, that's it. But as you go out through the rest of the year, you would then take your year-to-date provision and subtract out any provision you've recorded in prior periods. So if we just take a really simple example, imagine that I've calculated my effective tax rate and I've applied that in Q1 to my year-to-date earnings and I end up with a $50 provision for the quarter. And fast forward, I'm sitting in Q2, I do the same thing. I have my annual effective tax rate. I multiply that by my year-to-date earnings and I end up with a year-to-date provision of $60. In order to calculate my Q2 provision, I'll take the 60 year-to-date Q2 subtract out what I had in Q1, and I'll end up with a $10 provision. And importantly, the exact same thing will happen even if you have a loss, right? So if you had a loss in Q1, but you ultimately ended up having, well, first, if you had a loss in Q1, you would have recorded a benefit. You would have just taken your calculated annual effective tax rate times the loss in the quarter, and that would have been your benefit for the period. And then if you ended up with income, let's say year to date by the end of Q2, you would have done the exact same thing. You would have subtracted out that first quarter and obviously ended up with a much larger expense in the second quarter. So same process, whether I've got income or losses. All right. I can think of many scenarios that I want to ask you questions about. But before we do that, why don't we just start with the basics, which you said this whole thing starts with the calculation of your annual effective tax rate, or as you said, just your effective tax rate. So how do you go about doing that calculation? So there are two key components when you calculate your annual effective tax rate. And so there's your estimated ordinary income or loss for the year, and then there's your estimated tax provision or benefit for the year. Now, 
important factors. One, that tax provision we're talking about, it's your total tax provision. So it includes both current and deferred taxes. And it is a worldwide effective tax rate. So I think this is an important part. And Cassie will talk about some of the exceptions to that. But you are calculating under US GAAP, you're calculating a single worldwide effective tax rate. So that means that ordinary income and tax provision I mentioned, the estimates you need, you need them by entity, by jurisdiction. And then you'll accumulate that all into one annual effective tax rate for the world. Now, also importantly, that includes all kinds of taxes. So, you know, I mentioned current and deferred, but if you think about the components you'd be talking about, federal, state, foreign, local, withholding taxes, credits, dividend received deductions, it is the entirety of the tax provision. All of those are included. And clearly, and I've used the word already multiple times, all of those are estimates, right? But the standard actually acknowledges in this, I think causes some anxiety in some fact patterns, particularly when you have a year like, let's say last year, this idea that my rate might change even significantly quarter over quarter causes a fair bit of anxiety at times. But in fact, the standard acknowledges by necessity, this is an estimate. And so inherent within an estimate is change. I think the key part there, though, is to make sure you've got the right controls and processes in place to ensure that you understand why something's changing. Clearly, from a control perspective, you need to have all the components, but just to change an estimate is and should be pretty explainable. One question on that, because you mentioned the year like last year, where maybe you started the year one way and things went drastically sideways for many companies or maybe better for some companies. But it feels like this year might be even more difficult because I'm sitting in in March and it's really hard to predict what's going to happen this year. And I know you said it was an estimate, but what do you say in that circumstance where I really don't know how fast vaccine, how things, you know, how fast things are going to reopen? Do you just follow your process and then update as you go? Do you What do you see companies typically doing again when you're starting the year with so much uncertainty? So I think you hit on it. It is that you go through your process, you gather these components. Like if you break it down into its pieces, you look at your forecast for the year of both your income and or loss and your um, tax. And so clearly disclosure becomes important. You know, Cassie will talk about some exceptions that certainly come into the into the fact patterns when we're looking at a year like last year and probably a bit this year. But in fact, we saw a number of companies with a lot of uncertainties, even as they went through Q2, Q3 last year. And ultimately companies, what we saw is most companies were able to estimate an annual effective tax rate. You know, they were able to continue down that process. So I would expect it's the same thing. In fact, I would expect many companies have actually become pretty good at looking at the impact. While there still remains a number of uncertainties, we saw a return in a number of aspects in later in the year that I think companies were becoming more comfortable with the uncertainties and how those might be impacting their businesses. And again, I I can't stress enough, whenever we're talking about uncertainty, disclosure is very helpful to an investor. Well, and it sounds like internal documentation is also a critical point here just to document what you assumed and how you came up with these 
approvals, et cetera. So then, Jen, another question you mentioned a few times, I think with a small amount of emphasis, the word ordinary. And so we talked about ordinary income tax and for the non-tax people listening, which I think will be the majority, what do we mean when we say that? Well, so maybe I'll just make a little nod first to to the extent we've got tax people listening. Ordinary is not in the context of the tax law where we talk about ordinary versus capital. And those can mean different tax rates and their terms within the tax law. This, when I talk ordinary, when we mention ordinary throughout this conversation, this is defined by U.S. GAAP. And essentially, it's income from continuing operations, obviously before taxes, and it excludes significant, unusual, or infrequently occurring items. And so maybe just note, unusual or infrequently occurring items, those are really items that we're going to talk about in a moment around they get treated as discreetly. And maybe, Heather, if I flash back, we probably left out one important part of what happens in a quarter, right? Because you calculate that annual effective tax rate, which is leveraging ordinary income or loss. You multiply that effective tax rate times your year-to-date ordinary income or loss, and you calculate your quarterly provision. But then to that number, you do need to add discrete items. And those are items which, again, are not based upon ordinary income or loss, which is really just income from continuing operations before taxes. Okay, so I'm going to come back to discrete items, but one more question on this effective tax rate. Obviously, one other thing that's very top of mind right now is a lot of talk about potential tax law changes. And again, a lot of talk, who knows what's going to happen. But if I'm a company, do I need to be thinking about the fact that could happen, knowing that normally you don't account for those until they occur? But how does that factor into this? That's a really important question. You do not consider them, right? You do not consider something um, like a change in tax law. That would be something that is recorded discreetly in the period when it happens. Um, But I would say that we saw companies thinking about potential tax law changes in their year-end financial statements when they thought about disclosure around, you know, MD&A or risk factors and things like that. So again, disclosure companies might be talking about it in those sections, but you should not be accounting for it and it shouldn't be embedded within your effective tax rate at this point. Okay. Very helpful. So not, N-O, do not include it. It's very, very key because we don't want anyone to to go sideways on that. So then Cassie, let me turn to you. And I think this really important point that Jen made, where she talked about how we separately account for discrete items. And so maybe just to start, what do we mean when we describe something as discrete? Yep. So a discrete item is any tax expense or tax benefit that is not related to ordinary income. So as Jen mentioned, the actual gap definition calls out two adjectives, unusual and infrequent, and those would be discrete items. So when you think about unusual, you're thinking about things that have a high degree of abnormality for the company and are unrelated to the typical business activities of the company. Um, And then on the infrequent side, you would think about things that aren't reasonably expected to recur in the foreseeable future. Now, Jen emphasized the word or when she was reading the definition. It's an item. An item doesn't have to be both unusual and infrequent. It can be either one to be a discrete item. And I guess the other thing that I would emphasize is that you have to think about context when you're thinking about 
unusual or infrequent um, because it's a really judgmental area. For example, if you were a manufacturing company and your warehouse got wiped out by a hurricane, that's probably, you know, a discrete item for you. That would not be, you know, that would be unusual um, and infrequent, you would hope. But if you are property insurance company who is um, incurring losses because of claims associated with hurricanes, that may not be unusual or infrequent for you because of your business. So then let me just take an example. If I think of something that happened, unfortunately, to many companies in the past year, something like a goodwill impairment, would that typically qualify for treatment as a discrete item? Yeah, a goodwill impairment typically would be unusual and frequent for most companies, you hope. And I guess the other thing to think about, too, is that when you're thinking about the entire process of interim accounting for taxes, you're thinking about, could it be part of your forecast? And a goodwill impairment couldn't have been part of your forecast. Um, And so that would also help it to qualify as being a discrete item. And besides that, so goodwill impairment is is one that that probably a lot of companies dealt with this last year. There are some other items that GAAP specifically tells us uh, will always be discrete. And um, this isn't an exhaustive list, but the ones that are most common off the top of my head, um, disc ops is one. If you have a change in accounting principle, like we've had over the last couple of years, as you mentioned, an impact of the uh, change in tax law, that would be a discrete item that you would just account for in the period that it occurred. Excess tax deductions for stock-based compensation. So these used to be called windfalls, people knew them as. Those would be discrete items as well. So there there can be others, but generally speaking, the the point is the list is not that long. So most things should actually be included in the estimated AETR. Okay, definitely sounds like some judgment there. Again, considering the current environment we're in as well, maybe we've seen companies have two impairments, but you still wouldn't expect them to be frequent. So some judgment. So then Cassie, now that we've said something is a discrete item, how do we consider that in the quarterly tax provision? Yep. So in the quarter, when the discrete item occurs, the company would calculate the tax impact of that item and then add it to the quarterly tax provision that they calculated using the AETR method that Jen described earlier. So let me just summarize them. We could An item could be either discrete or part of ordinary income. And then depending on which one it is, that will determine how it's reflected in the financial statements on an interim basis. Yeah. So Heather, maybe I'll jump in here. And the answer is yes, uh, but... Um, there are some items that could have a flavor of both of those things. So you're absolutely right that usually it's one or the other, but maybe three examples that we see not infrequently that could be both UTPs, so uncertain tax positions. You could have a UTP that's coming through the year to do with the current year. So it's like embedded in the ordinary income of the year that would get accounted for within the annual effective tax rate. But you could, in theory, also have changes from either recognition or measurement of prior year positions. So back to everything we've been talking about, the annual effective tax rate for this year only includes items that deal with this year's ordinary income. So to the extent you have a change in an uncertain tax position that's from a prior year, that would be accounted for discreetly. You'd also have similar discussions when you think about valuation allowance changes or or indefinite reinvestment changes. So we'll take them one at a time. From a valuation allowance perspective, 
what we commonly see is when, let's say you're releasing a valuation allowance as a result of a change in future year's ordinary income, that impact would be accounted for discreetly. But to the extent that the current year ordinary income allowed you to realize the benefit from some of your deferred tax assets and you released a valuation allowance, that might run through, that would run through the annual effective tax rate. So again, important to recognize or figure out why you have a change. And that would be really whether it's going up or down. And then the indefinite reinvestment is the last one I'll just mention, which is really the same thing to the extent that you have something as a result of a change in assertion that's related to the current year. So think about like your current year earnings, that's going to go through the rate. But if you're changing your assertion, let's say regarding beginning of year earnings, that's going to get accounted for discreetly. So you can have things that fit into both buckets. Of course, there's always exceptions. And it sounds like then if I'm thinking through my interim provision, just from a step perspective, calculate my ordinary income, identify my discrete items, and then consider these sort of, I'll call them exceptions to the rule. And that's going to be the baseline for my calculation. But Cassie, I'm assuming since there's other exceptions, there's exceptions for when I even use this annual effective tax rate method, or how do we think about that? Yeah. So there are a couple of situations where a company would not use a worldwide ATR approach. One instance is when the company operates in a jurisdiction that generates ordinary losses on either a year-to-date basis or you're anticipating losses for the full year, and the company isn't able to recognize a benefit on those losses. So in other words, they need a valuation allowance on the losses. In that situation, that particular jurisdiction's income or loss loss probably should be excluded from the overall estimated AETR. And then you would calculate a separate ETR for that jurisdiction. Um, So like I said, we see this most often on companies that have full valuation allowances in a particular jurisdiction. And in that case, when you go and calculate your separate ETR, it's usually zero. The rate is zero percent. And when we talk about that you can't recognize a benefit, what we mean is no benefit. Like if you can record a little bit of a benefit or any of your benefit, then it shouldn't be excluded from the worldwide AETR. You should still you know, keep it in there. But I guess in that case, let's assume you have a little benefit. Do you only include the portion that you can benefit from? Is it, back, is it another one of these split sort of part discrete part included in the AETR? How do you think about that? Yeah. So it's not like that split view we just talked about, Heather. So the exceptions that Cassie's talking about are literally whether you pull out an entire jurisdiction or whether you leave that jurisdiction entirely in the worldwide effective tax rate. So it's one or the other. And then if you conclude, I cannot pull it out because it doesn't meet this exception, then it's in the rate. Now, what that means is then you're going to have this impact on your rate from having this lost jurisdiction in there where there's only maybe a little bit of benefit you could get. So that's clearly going to impact your effective tax rate, but you would leave it in. You wouldn't You wouldn't split it into pieces. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. Because I definitely had a question from that one. So then Cassie, maybe another question, any other cases other than this one that you wouldn't use the AETR approach? Yeah. So another instance might be when a company might have a jurisdiction for which a reliable estimate of its AETR can't be made. 
And if a company can't make a reliable estimate, then it should exclude that jurisdiction from the overall computation of the AETR. Now, I want to emphasize that there is a general presumption that entities will be able to make a reliable estimate of their ADTR. However, there are sometimes circumstances that arise that could result in an inability to make a reliable estimate. And if that's the case, that would justify exclusion of a jurisdiction from the worldwide effective tax rate. Sometimes companies may not believe they can estimate ordinary income, so they may believe that means they can't estimate their AETR. This was a pretty common discussion item during the pandemic when companies might not have had a lot of confidence in their ability to estimate, say, their ordinary income. However, in some instances, changes in pre-tax income may actually not yield a large change in the AETR if a company, say, has permanent items that move in proportion to the changes in pre-tax income. Therefore, significant swings in pre-tax income may not impact a company's ability to actually make a reliable estimate of the AETR. However, there are other situations where a company may be able to reliably forecast and may be expecting results that are break-even. Sometimes in this situation, it's possible that even a slight change in pre-tax income might result in large fluctuations in the AETR. For example, if say book versus tax permanent items are significant relative to the break-even pre-tax income, even a slight change in the pre-tax income could dramatically change the AETR. And in those cases, a company may find that they're unable to make a reliable estimate of the AETR. So then, Cassie, it sounds like if I'm in a particular jurisdiction very close to break even, that's where this can become an issue? Yep, that's right, if you have significant perms. And then one other quick question on that is we've always talked about this in the context of that's like one jurisdiction in a broader company. But I guess if you were only in one jurisdiction and you were break even, then you would have the same consideration. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Let's see, Jen, am I forgetting any besides those two? No, I think, you know, one that occasionally comes up and it's maybe worth mentioning just for its interest factor is 0% jurisdiction. So where the statutory rate's actually 0%, we've seen debate over the years as to whether those jurisdictions should remain in the annual worldwide effective tax rate or not. You know, when you think about the exception that Cassie talked about that you were mentioning, Cassie, around the no benefit well, if you've got a 0% tax rate and you have a loss, let's say year to date, you're not getting benefit. But is that the same as what the exception means? So there's been some debate. We ultimately have landed that, you know, it's not, it obviously isn't addressed in codification. So we think there's probably more than one answer. And we talk more about that in our income taxes guide in chapter 16. So Uh, To the extent that you have that, there are a few different iterations that you might consider. So um, look at that guidance. You know, all this discussion of estimates, and then we're talking about income taxes. I think a lot of times from the controller's perspective, they may be thinking this is a problem for the tax department. But what do you see the role is as of the controller or his or her team in sort of these calculations, um, particularly as we're thinking about, you know, Q1 and going forward and the importance of of setting this rate. 
I mean, I think that's a huge question. I definitely think it's a cross-specialty process. Again, we've spent most of our time talking about ordinary income and budget, forecast, all of that activity doesn't come from the tax department. This is truly the company's business forecast. So I think when you think about what's in it, and then by the way, when you think about what changes, like quarter over quarter, if you're explaining why your rate was one was one number in the first quarter and it's now something else, in a lot of cases, that's because pre-tax has changed. So I think it's very important for people to, uh, for you know, the teams, if you will, to be working together because it's really driven by the business. The this is I, recognizing that the tax provision is an estimate. It's based upon a forecast that's been created that tax people can then go and look at, let's say, the permanent items and things like that. So very important for everybody to be engaged from the beginning, um, but then also as things begin to evolve through a year. Yeah. And I guess, Jen, the other thing, you know, we talked briefly about goodwill impairments and that always makes me think, you know, there's lots of forecasts being used for different things in a company and maybe they're sharing different forecasts. And so that consistency is going to be key. You don't want to be using one here, a different one for goodwill and, you know, maybe a different one for something else. Yeah. And and I mentioned process, right? Controls and process earlier. This part, the point you've just made is really important because it's one thing for your estimate to change quarter over quarter. It would be super unfortunate to find out that we just were using the wrong forecast just because something changed and it didn't make its way back. And those are real issues. So it requires a, a lot of checking in with each other and having coordination so that we're using the right information. Yeah, I think that's a great reminder. Uh, so then maybe the last question on this would be, you mentioned chapter 16 of the income tax guide as something, you know, a place to go look. Um, where else should companies go for more information? Well, I think actually six chapter 16 is all about interim. So we try to hit on the, we hit on the exceptions, the basics, the nuances. So I'd say that's probably the best place to go. All right. So definitely a good time to go reread that chapter of the income tax guide at this time of year. So thank you. So then we're going to wrap up with my favorite segment, which I know you guys are aware of, which is why I always get to ask the more fun question. And since we're looking ahead to March 31, I thought it'd also be nice to look ahead to spring. And just curious what you guys might be looking forward to as weather starts to get better and you know, as, as we head into spring. So Jen, I'll start with you first. Well, I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is, as it turns out, right as we went into COVID, my family and I undertook a landscaping project, which if we had known COVID was coming, we likely wouldn't have. But nevertheless, we did. And we lived through it. Um, And so now, as we come into spring, I will see some of the things that we planted blooming for the very first time. So I'm particularly looking forward to seeing some lilac trees bloom because it was post-season by the time we got everything in. So that's that's probably the thing I've, uh, I'm most looking forward to for this year. Wow, lilacs are one of my favorite plants from when I was a kid in Wisconsin. We don't have those in California, so I'm a little envious of that. Very exciting. And Cassie, how about you? Honestly, this winter seems really long to me, unusually long. So I watch people like at golf events and stuff on TV and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're sitting outside in the sun and they feel warm and I just can't wait to be warm and sit in the sun and open some windows to get some fresh air because my goodness, like it's been, it feels like forever since we opened the windows. 
Yes. Well, definitely something to look forward to. So both really appreciate it. Definitely gave us a lot to think about today. Join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And don't forget to check out chapter 16 of PwC's Income Taxes Guide for even more coverage on today's topic. And on Thursdays, join me for our Forecast 2021 mini-series for CFOs and controllers. This week, we're talking about cybersecurity from the C-suite perspective. And in particular, we talk about a term that was new, at least to me, ITOT, or operational security. If you're not focused on this, after listening, you'll want to be. So that you never miss an episode, follow this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.